Welcome to Thoughts on Thriving, a holistic lifestyle and wellness podcast that's here to help you become the healthiest, happiest, most aligned version of yourself. I'm your host, Ava, a registered dietitian in training and health and wellness junkie. I'm so excited to have you here as I dive deep into meaningful conversations covering topics from nutrition and mental health to spirituality and self-development and everything in between with experts in many fields. I'm so happy you're choosing to learn how to thrive today. Let's get into the show. Hello, hello, everyone. Welcome back to Thoughts on Thriving. Happy Wednesday. If you're listening to this, the day it's being released. I'm really, really excited about today's episode. Today, we have on Dr. Sarah Silverman, who is a Stanford-trained sleep psychologist, holistic sleep wellness consultant, and insomnia expert with over a decade of experience. So I'm really excited to have Dr. Sarah on the show today because sleep is an area of wellness that I feel has been neglected by a lot of us, especially those of us who live very busy lives, which is probably everyone listening to this. So I am really, really excited to share some of her wisdom with you guys. She shares a lot of different tips on so many different topics related to sleep, including how many hours of sleep we really need, are naps okay, is melatonin okay? She answers kind of my burning questions that I'm sure you guys are wondering about as well. So a bit more on Dr. Sarah. Dr. Sarah Silverman earned her doctoral degree in clinical health psychology and received specialized fellowship training in behavioral sleep medicine from the Stanford Sleep Medicine Center. And Dr. Sarah is one of less than 500 behavioral sleep medicine specialists in the country because quality sleep is essential for optimal health, yet millions of Americans suffer from sleep problems. Dr. Sarah decided to pursue this specialty area and make it her mission to help others improve their sleep using non-medication strategies. And we get into some of these strategies in the episode, which is exciting. And Dr. Sarah treats a wide variety of sleep problems in private practice using a personalized mindfulness-based treatment approach. And she's an expert in cognitive behavior therapy for insomnia, which we also get into in the episode. Dr. Sarah is passionate about sleep health and wellness and routinely provides science-backed sleep tips via social media at Dr. Sarah Sleep. And she has some exciting announcements this year, including a signature insomnia program for women who want to overcome sleep difficulties without sleep aids. So stay tuned for program updates by following along on her Instagram at Dr. Sarah Sleep or by joining First Class Sleep, which is a free sleep wellness community for busy professional women that's also launching soon. So definitely make sure to give Dr. Sarah a follow on Instagram, follow along for her updates, and make sure to also share this episode on Instagram with your friends, send it to someone you know who you think would enjoy it or take something out of it, and make sure to leave the show a five-star rating and write a review if you're feeling generous today. It really helps get the show known, get it out into more people's ears, and I would really, really appreciate it if you took the time to do that. But without further ado, here is my conversation with Dr. Sarah Silverman. Hi, Dr. Sarah. How are you doing today? Hi, I'm well. How are you? I'm good. I'm so excited to have you on today because sleep is definitely a big topic of interest in my life right now. It's something that I'm personally trying to work on. And I know so many other people um, kind of let this part of health go (laughs) when they are trying to 
have a healthier lifestyle. I think sleep is like the last thing for a lot of people. So I'm very, very excited to have you on today. Yes, I'm excited to be here. Thank you so much for having me. I'm looking forward to our convo about sleep. Yes, me too. So as everyone heard in the intro, you are a super accomplished sleep specialist and you've been trained at Stanford in their sleep medicine center. Could you just tell Mm -hmm. us a little bit about why you got your start in the world of sleep and kind of how you did that? Yeah, yeah. Great question. And I think like I would say many folks, when they kind of enter into a specialty area, it often is because of personal reasons, maybe to start. Um, So that definitely is, I guess, where my interest started in sleep. I actually have always been a night owl and kind of struggled a lot over the years, especially like in high school and as a young adult in college, not really understanding why it was always so hard to wake up in the morning. And, you know, as I started to get into psychology, because that was also a really big interest of mine, I discovered that there was actually a sleep psychology specialty where, you know, we kind of bridge sleep medicine and psychology into one and try to target sleep disorders or sleep problems from a holistic perspective. So kind of right up my alley. Um, So started out for personal reasons. And then of course, as I got a better understanding of my own sleep issues that helped me, you know, try essentially overcome them or manage them better. But I would also say just in my training as a general psychologist, I was working in a lot of hospitals and medical centers. And I kept hearing from my patients in the hospital, especially, you know, I can't sleep. They're not letting me sleep. And, you know, it is kind of the irony of of healthcare, especially in the hospital, we want our patients to recover, but then we wake them up every four hours around the clock to take vital signs. So, you know, even in the hospital, it's hard sometimes to get sleep. So I just kept hearing that theme and that further kind of led me to really pursuing sleep psychology as a specialty. And I realized, you know, and then kind of really getting expertise training in sleep medicine at Stanford, that this really is something that we need more of in this world. Because as you said, so many people are neglecting this area of their health or prioritizing other areas and not so much sleep. And this is the area that we need to be really prioritizing. And, And of course I'm biased, but I think it should be number one on our list of prioritizing our, our healthy lifestyle goals. Totally. And I, I agree. Like it should be number one yet. It's so hard to make it number one because there's so many other things that we have going on in the day. And some people have trouble sleeping. Some people have trouble waking up. There's so many different factors that go into it. And sometimes just the busyness of our lives gets in the way and Mm -hmm. actually prevents us from being able to sleep enough. So we'll get into that hopefully. And, but you mentioned you're a more holistic sleep expert. Mm -hmm. So how does that differ from a more traditional sleep doctor? Yeah. So traditional sleep medicine doctor. So typically it's a physician, their primary specialty area is either pulmonology or neurology. 
sometimes mm-hmm. psychiatry. So they usually have that kind of background first and foremost. And then they also add on the sleep medicine specialty, which is fairly new. If we look at all the areas of, of medicine, mm-hmm. sleep medicine has only really started to become clinical sleep medicine, um, I believe since like the seventies. So it really hasn't been around for that long. And we're really just now starting to you know, kind of scratch the surface in terms of how to intervene. Um, but I would say, you know, with, with sleep medicine doctors, they, because of their background, so either pulmonology, neurology, or psychiatry, typically they're often looking at sleep from more of the physical side. So more of the physical medicine, more conventional medicine side. And of course, not all of them, but that's kind of how their training is initially set up. And then once they pursue sleep medicine, it does kind of take things a step further. So combining pulmonology and neurology with sleep, but it is often more focused on physical sleep disorders, sleep disordered breathing problems, or we can kind of get into that as well. You know, some of the other kind of physical sleep disorders and how they manifest. And oftentimes with those uh, conditions, they are treated with medication. So typically, you know, with treating sleep disorders, it's more likely that a sleep medicine physician would be prescribing something if that's indicated for a sleep problem. And on the other hand, so, you know, where my background is and my specialty lies behavioral sleep medicine. So it's this subspecialty of sleep medicine, but this is a much more holistic approach to sleep. So there are several different types of science-backed sleep therapies that are more non-medication in nature. And it's all about, you know, really trying to target and overcome sleep problems from this kind of whole body holistic approach. And of course I'm biased here, but I do firmly believe that this is kind of the way that medicine is also heading, you know, really trying to look at everybody from, from mind and body and and everything that they're experiencing and not just automatically kind of resorting to medications. So that's kind of the, the, the differences in a nutshell, but behavioral sleep medicine is also known as sleep psychology. So it's more of kind of intervening from this non-medication holistic uh, perspective. That's very interesting. So what would some of those non-medication sleep therapies be? Yeah, so so there are several. I would say the most popular um, is one that is specific to insomnia, and it's called cognitive behavior therapy for insomnia. It's a brief skills-based treatment. So of course everybody is different, but usually it's about four to six visits in total, give or take. So it's short term in comparison to some of the other traditional therapies. And in psychology in general, there are many different types of therapies or kind of counseling styles, cognitive behavior therapy being one of them. So we've taken the foundation of cognitive behavior therapy and then have applied it to insomnia. So it's it's very similar in a lot of ways, but it's also very different. The way that I kind of phrase it to my clients is it's more of a like a workshop or a class because it's skills-based and there's, you know, a lot of education involved. It's a lot of learning about insomnia and how to overcome it. And that's a huge part of it, but it really is 
a short-term skills-based treatment approach that of course is drug-free. And oftentimes one of the goals is to actually help people come off of sleeping pills. So that's one of my main goals for, for a lot of the clients I work with is to really get to a point where they feel confident that they can start to either reduce their sleep aids or come off of them entirely. So that often is kind of one of the end goals of treatment if, if of course, the person's interested. But that's one um, specific behavioral sleep medicine therapy. There's also a version of that for hypersomnia. So instead of insomnia, it's cognitive behavior therapy for hypersomnia. So for folks who have a history of idiopathic hypersomnia, so excessive daytime sleepiness without really a cause or a a reason, or a history of narcolepsy, this treatment, it isn't unfortunately a first-line treatment, usually with hypersomnia medication is, just because that's really the only thing that we've found so far that can keep people awake during the day. But it is an adjunct in addition to the medication that has been shown to be really helpful. So cognitive behavior therapy for insomnia and then hypersomnia. There is also a very specific non-medication treatment for nightmares. So for folks who have chronic nightmares, it's called imagery rehearsal therapy. And it's also a very brief skills-based treatment. And in a nutshell, it's for folks who have nightmares on a regular basis that may be really distressing and start to impact their day. And the treatment essentially helps teach folks how to re-script their dreams during the daytime. And every day it's practicing the new dream, a new positive or kind of neutral dream. So that over time, the brain kind of picks up on that new dream. And then in theory, that will help change the actual distressing dreams at night. So that's also something that has been shown to be really helpful. And then let me see, um, there's also, this one isn't as well known, but it's kind of a combination of, of therapies. It's for folks who have a history of obstructive sleep apnea and who are using CPAP therapy or continuous positive airway pressure, which is the Darth Vader mask um, for a lot of folks. But for those who struggle with their mask or they haven't really found the motivation to use it, there is a cognitive behavior therapy for CPAP adherence. So to help kind of boost motivation and help people want to use their machine and also just kind of helping them get acclimated to CPAP because it is something for a lot of people. It's having to wear this thing on your face every night for the rest of your life. And that, that can get, um, you know, can take some time to really get used to that. So there is a variation of this therapy called systematic desensitization, or it's a type of exposure therapy for wearing a CPAP mask, which kind of helps people pair using their CPAP mask with relaxation training. So those are the big therapies in a nutshell. Um, I'm sure I left one off. So if it comes to me, I'll, I'll jump back in. Yeah, no, that was amazing. Thank you for giving us an overview. I actually am not familiar with most of what you said. So I think this will be really good new information for everyone listening. Um, That's so interesting. I didn't know there were like different types of cognitive behavioral therapy for sleep disorders, especially the CPAP one. Like a lot of my, I work at the VA 
in my uh, training to become a dietitian right now. And basically all my patients have obstructive sleep apnea and they're on a CPAP machine. So that's really interesting. That would be very helpful for them, I think. Yes. The VA population, I would say high prevalence of sleep disorders and a lot of them are on CPAP or they have the machine, but they're not using it. So it can definitely be a therapy that would be so helpful for them. Totally. And they, a lot of them probably deal with nightmares as well. Just going back to what you were talking about because of PTSD and what comes with that, that would definitely be, I feel like a lot of these, these modalities would be helpful for people like that really for anyone. Yeah. For, For anyone, for anyone. Yeah. And I would say most people have never even heard of sleep psychology. They don't even know that sleep psychologists exist. Mm-hmm. So I'm here to say like, yes, we exist. <laughs> Not many of us, you know, I think, I don't know what the latest stat is, but you know, a couple of years ago, there was less than 500 of us yeah. in the world. So there's just not many of us to go around. And so I think it also is kind of an access issue. I mean, there are, you know, cities around the country where there are a pool of us, but, you know, if you don't live in a major city, it may be really hard to find a true sleep psychologist or behavioral sleep medicine specialist. So that does kind of impact whether or not you can find care. But I will say since the pandemic, things have been a little bit easier because now we've all ultimately transitioned to virtual. So now we can see people, you know, a little bit um, all over, or at least extend our reach as far as, as therapies, but it's still hard. It's still hard to find us. And it's, it's definitely not something that people are actively looking for because they just don't know that, that we exist. Totally. And I feel like the first kind of line of help is like going to a doctor and trying to get on a medication. And like you were saying, you try to help people get off their medications, which I love. I'm also all about taking a holistic approach to health, uh, specifically to nutrition, but to health in general. And Mm -hmm. I love that you're taking the same approach with sleep and it really can be applied to every aspect of health. And I think it's really important to just spread the word. And I'm really happy to have you on and be able to share your message with my audience. But hopefully we get this message out further and further because I didn't even know about sleep psychology. So I bet most people like I'm very into all these health modalities, different healers, different practitioners. And I just wonder if someone who isn't into health at all has ever even heard of a sleep psychologist. I, I highly doubt it. Yeah. Yeah. Most, most people who get referred to me, they're like, I don't know why I'm, I've, I've been sent to you, but my doctor says I needed to talk to you. And they often think because I'm a psychologist that, you know, they need to see me for like talk therapy. And I make that very clear from the get go. Like, this is very different than that. Like, we're just going to be focusing on how you're sleeping and how we can help you get better quality sleep. So even though it is kind of under the umbrella of therapy, it looks and feels very different. And I have that feedback from clients, like, you know, tell me if I would have known that this is what it was going to be like, I would have done it much sooner because people struggle for years and are on sleep medications for years. I mean, I have folks I see in like their eighties who have been on Ambient for 30 plus years. And they come to me and they're like really skeptical that what I do is going to be the very thing that's going to get them off the pill that they've been on for so long. But once they kind of learn more about sleep and how insomnia develops and how to build up that confidence in their own natural ability to sleep, 
they get to a point where they're ready to come off of it. And yes, it takes time, but it, it does happen. So, you know, I do want people to know that there is hope. You don't have to take sleeping meds for the rest of your life. There are definitely really, really great therapies that can help with this. Wow. That's so amazing. So with the insomnia, what would you say are the biggest causes of insomnia and how do you even know if you have it? Both great questions. So insomnia or to say chronic insomnia is defined as difficulty falling asleep, difficulty staying asleep, waking up too early, or a combination of those two or three problems. There's also with insomnia, there's also the likelihood that sleep will feel non-restorative or very poor quality, waking up, feeling really tired and just throughout the day, feeling really exhausted as well. So it certainly starts to trickle into how you feel during the daytime, but typically with those common insomnia symptoms, you have to be experiencing those for at least three nights a week for three months or longer in order to classify as a chronic insomnia disorder. So if it's less than three nights a week and it's less than three months, that would fall under kind of acute or short-term insomnia, which can still be really frustrating, but that often is stress-induced, I would say, in in most cases, not always, but I'd say the majority of cases it is stress-related and often kind of resolves or goes away on its own when the stress goes away or decreases. Um, So I typically see folks who have chronic insomnia. So years later, they are still experiencing insomnia symptoms and whether or not they've been put on medication, most of the time, they've never really tried cognitive behavior therapy for insomnia. So it's a new way of thinking about sleep. And it really is more of learning these long-term strategies that they can use you know, to manage sleep disruption without the need to take something. So while I do typically see chronic insomnia, I would say having insomnia in general, even a night can be incredibly frustrating and impact your day tremendously. What I really like to tell, you know, my clients is that having a night or two here and there of insomnia is actually normal. It's part of the human experience. So we all will have nights of insomnia from time and time again, but we want to prevent those couple of nights from becoming a chronic problem. Because once it becomes chronic, that of course is when it gets a little bit more challenging to treat, but it is treatable. It is treatable, which is good news. And it is something I would say, you know, I think a lot of folks are struggling with insomnia and don't actually know how to find a sleep specialist or don't really know where to look. And that also is something that is challenging. What I will say, just since we're on that topic, um, one of the best places to be able to find a sleep specialist and, and one who really does focus on insomnia is the Society of Behavioral Sleep Medicine or behavioralsleep.org. So they actually have a directory that you can kind of put in your location and then you'll see who is currently in practice and who may be seeing folks. Um, So that's one of the main organizations for behavioral sleep medicine. And that's kind of the best place that we have folks listed. Awesome. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that resource. Cause anyone, if you're listening and you struggle with this, this 
sounds like a game changer. I personally don't have insomnia, but I know people who do, and it, it totally is, it's devastating. Like it takes a toll on your entire life, your entire day, every day. And it's, it doesn't look like fun at all. And I mean, I have my fair share of problems with sleep. I do not sleep enough. Um, and we can get, so that's the opposite problem. Yeah. 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 That's also a problem. It is a problem. Yeah. It's a different problem, but the fact that you have enough time to sleep and you can't like that, just, it's totally something that can affect your entire life, not just your sleep, but your relationships, your health, everything. So thank you for sharing that. So I, yeah, I, I did a, a poll with my Instagram audience and I asked if they sleep well every night. That was one of the questions. And 83% of the audience said that they do not sleep well every night, which is an overwhelming amount of people. And I just have a lot of questions about sleep in general, not insomnia now, just to kind of talk about all the different possibilities of maybe why people aren't sleeping well every night and how we can change Mm -hmm. this. So just back to basics, how many hours of sleep do we actually need every night? Sleep specialists will debate this question. And the way that I really like to kind of phrase this or kind of, you know, give an answer to this is you want to really kind of check in with how you're sleeping overall. So if you have a night or two of sleep disruption, that's to be expected. But in general, if you feel like you're sleeping okay and you're able to get through your day feeling your best, like feeling like you can get through meetings, get through, you know, appointments, get through class, get through work without like actively feeling like you're going to fall asleep or fight off dozing or just feeling like so exhausted that you can't get through the rest of the day. You really do want to look towards how you're feeling during the daytime as a better predictor of judging whether or not you're getting enough sleep. And I usually say like, let the number go because the number, well, yes, you know, yes, it is important. It also isn't as important as the quality of the hours that you're getting. So, you know, some folks will be eight hour sleepers because that's what everything these days tells us we need to be, but they're not getting eight hours of good good quality sleep. They're, you know, trying to get that eight hours, but it's very broken or fragmented. So I know that's kind of a long-winded answer, but it's going to vary on an individual basis. So yes, the majority of folks will fall into that seven to nine hour range. But what we know based on data is that there's actually a really wide range of total sleep need that could vary from person to person. So anywhere from four to 11 hours could actually be considered normal. So we do have some data that tells us that. And I'd say again, like most people will fall it's kind of like a bell curve. Most people will fall in that seven to nine range, but then there are people who are what we call short sleepers who just don't need as many hours of sleep, like four to five hours and they're good to go. And then there are long sleepers, those who need nine or 10 hours, or they just won't be able to function the next day. So, you know, most people kind of fall somewhere along there. And I'd say oftentimes for folks with insomnia, it usually is more on the shorter side of sleep. Like there are a lot of um, people who have insomnia who are also short sleepers. So that also does sometimes feed into the worry about sleep. They're not getting eight hours and that can you know, really contribute to that insomnia pattern or that cycle. 
Oh, that's super interesting. I really wish I was one of those four hour sleepers, but I don't think I am. <laughs> it's a very small percentage. I will say yeah. a very small percentage. And on the flip side, you know, longer sleepers, very small percentage. So yeah. And I would say you like, you know, whether four hours is enough sleep. Right. So I think people generally kind of know how many hours feel good for them. And then if you don't get that number on a regular basis, you're going to feel it during the day. And so going back to like really looking to how you feel during the day as a better predictor of how you're actually sleeping the night before, whether or not you're getting enough sleep. Interesting. And you mentioned quality sleep. So I personally track my sleep. This is something I recently started doing with an aura ring. A, do you recommend sleep tracking? And B, could you talk a little bit about the different phases of sleep, REM, deep sleep, light sleep, and maybe how much of each is needed per night? Yes. Yes. Great question. So I will, I'll give you my spiel on movement trackers, like the aura ring. And of course there are many Fitbit, Apple watch, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Um, I do think that there will be a point where they will be very sophisticated, but right now they aren't as accurate as I think they are marketed to be. Mm-hmm. Um, so of course ev- the data is different based on the specific type of tracker. But I think for the aura ring, as an example, I think sleep wise, they're kind of somewhere in between 40 to 60% accurate. And I may be off a little bit there, but I bring that up because, you know, the sleep architecture or the different sleep stages. So like the data that you get may not actually be what's happening. And at least for a lot of the clients that that I see looking at that data and seeing that data every morning actually backfires and makes sleep worse because they're like, you know, looking at that, like, oh, I didn't get any deep sleep or I was awake for hours during the night. And, you know, sleep is a process that happens in our brain. It's the change in brain waves and not to be silly, but, you know, we don't have a brain in our wrist or our fingers. So mm-hmm. it's just not going to be as accurate, um, you know, as would a a sleep study. Yeah. I actually noticed that because I'll wake up and it'll tell me that I got a really good sleep score and I'll be like, I don't feel that great. So, so that's, yeah, that I, I would have to agree with you. Although it is still something that I like to do just to see around like a, a little average of where I'm at. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that they can be really great tools for kind of looking at general patterns and general themes. So I think they're really great at estimating the total amount of sleep that you may be getting over time. So as an example, like if it's saying you're getting like seven, eight hours on average, that's probably close to what you are getting, but the in-betweens, the different sleep stages I usually tell my clients, like, take that with a grain of salt, especially when they're in treatment, just because that often does kind of create a hyper focus around having to achieve perfect sleep. And we can't really control what happens while we sleep. You know, our brain is is going to enter different sleep stages as it needs, depending on what we, what the brain needs to recover and repair itself. So I think they can be really, really great devices for looking at overall themes and patterns. But if you feel like 
you're still struggling to sleep or the data is like very opposite from what you're feeling, especially the next day, then I would say use it for everything else, but for sleep. (laughs) (laughs) Well, the step tracker on the aura ring is not super accurate either. So now I'm like, should I return it? They're awesome. I do. And my, you know, as I mentioned, I, I really think that you know, when they compare the data, they're comparing it to an in-lab sleep study, which with an in-lab sleep study, you're getting hooked up to brain electrodes. And so it's just a much more accurate representation. So I do think through AI and big machine learning that they're going to get to a point where they're going to be just as accurate, if Mm -hmm. not better. I don't think we're quite there yet, but I do think that for many, many other reasons, like the O-ring has really awesome, like was it the HRB monitor? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So there are like so many really cool aspects with that too, which can be great for overall health and wellness. But sometimes when it comes to sleep, that is something that does create a bit of either anxiety around sleep, or it creates like this perfectionism around sleep. Yeah, that's a great point. I mean, it's kind of like tracking calories that can become obsessive as well um, Mm -hmm. with food or any other kind of tracking that you have to look at something every day for and kind of judge your health. It definitely can bring more harm than good. So what about REM sleep and deep sleep? Uh, Are there Mm -hmm. certain amounts of each one that we need every night? Yeah. So I'll kind of walk you through the progression of a typical night of sleep. So with, with our sleep stages, we have REM sleep or rapid eye movement sleep, otherwise known as dream sleep. And then we have non-REM, which is comprised of three different stages. So non-REM stage one is the very lightest stage of sleep. Non-REM stage two is light sleep, but getting a little bit deeper. And then non-REM stage three is our deep sleep or slow wave sleep. And typically when we first get into bed and kind of transition off to sleep, we cycle through the stages in order. So we start out at stage one, we get into stage two, and then we get down to stage three, our deep sleep within the first hour or so, but we don't really stay there for that long. We kind of cycle back up to stage two, and then we go back down to stage three. And what's really interesting is for most adults, after about hour three of our night, that's it for deep sleep. That's all we need. So it's a really common pattern for most people to sleep those first three, four hours, give or take pretty consolidated. And then that's where they start to notice they're waking up. If they're waking up during the night to use the bathroom or just waking up for other reasons. And so it's usually, yeah, it's usually that like second part of the night or what we consider the second part of the night that's comprised of more awakenings. And that's also where we're, we transition to REM sleep and more light sleep again until we wake up, you know, for our final wake up time. And is REM sleep the only time during which we dream? No, it's not. So most of our dreaming does occur during REM sleep, but we can actually dream in the other stages of sleep as well. So it's still very possible. And we actually spend the most time of our night in stage two sleep. So we spend majority, uh, majority of our night spent there and then followed by REM sleep as kind of the next, um, I'd say the next biggest stage of sleep as far as time spent there, followed by deep sleep and then stage one sleep. So it's, it's most of the time in stage two and REM 
then deep sleep, and then stage one sleep. But it really isn't something that we can control, right? Our, 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 you know, so I think that's also, you know, as I, as I tell folks, like your, your brain's going to do what it needs to do as far as like cycling you through the different stages of sleep. And if it's not, then that's something that, you know, then we would want to really look into and kind of figure out with a sleep study. But typically I'd say for most people, the first half of the night is pretty consolidated. And then the second half of the night, just because that is where we're dreaming, it's more likely to wake up more during that middle to end of the night. And as the night goes on, our, our sleep does become lighter, which is often why it's hard to fall back asleep in the morning. Like if you've ever woken up like mm-hmm. 30 minutes before you need to be up and you're like, Oh, I just want this extra 30 minutes. And it's sometimes hard to get that it's because you probably already came out of a really, really light stage of sleep and you're just ready for the day. So it's actually better in those cases to get up and start your day versus trying to get that extra sleep. Cause it just may not happen. That's a really great tip. Cause I always try to go back. Well, what about people who have trouble falling asleep at night? What kind of tips do you have for those kinds of people? Yeah. So for folks who have trouble falling asleep at night, one of the best things to do is to really get back in touch with your natural sleep drive. And our sleep drive is very similar to our hunger drive. So just like our body tells us when we're hungry, our body is going to tell us when we're sleepy. But sometimes people get into bed way too early, like way before their sleep drive is high enough to be able to fall asleep quickly. And so that's actually one of the very first steps as part of cognitive behavior therapy for insomnia. It's actually getting back in touch with this natural sleep drive. We all have one, it's our sleep system. And it's the very thing that allows us to go to sleep every night, whether or not you're sleeping well, or it's not you know necessarily the best quality sleep. For most people, they're still sleeping. So this sleep system does eventually kick in. It just sometimes doesn't kick in when people want it to kick in. So by getting kind of back in touch with that natural sleep ability, I mean, one of the best ways to do that, if not the best way is to actually wait until you're sleepy enough to be able to fall asleep quickly and then get into bed. So when you have a high sleep drive, that means you can get into bed, put your head on your pillow and fall asleep less than 10, 15 minutes. Interesting. And so if you have work or something like that, where you want to get a specific amount of sleep, but you're just not tired at, let's say 10 PM or 9 PM, but you have to wake up at five in the morning. What would you say to those kinds of people? Yeah. So it is really tough with work and responsibilities. And of course there are some, sometimes there there are going to be nights where you have a project or a deadline that you need to meet. And so, you know, to, to answer your question, I would say there has to be a cutoff point from being in this, like doing work mode and getting work done to transitioning to just being, to just kind of in a relaxed state, you can't, unfortunately, we, none of us can really go from work right to bed, or I'd say those who can are kind of the lucky ones. They're usually, there has to be this kind of transition for the brain to, you know, really differentiate being awake and doing things that are maybe stressful versus time to transition to sleep and and get into bed. So I usually do recommend like 
course, getting as much as you can done, but having a, a, a very set cutoff point to at least give yourself 30 to 60 minutes before getting into bed. And sometimes what people find is, you know, whatever they're working on, you know, may take a little bit longer than usual. And then they have that cutoff point, but they're not sleepy. They're not, you know, tired enough yet to go to get into bed. So then now it's transitioning to an activity that actually promotes relaxation. So kind of getting away from that work mode, doing something that's um, both enjoyable and relaxing and waiting for your sleep drive to get high enough so that you can get into bed and fall asleep quickly. So that could be a little bit of time after that, but that really is one of the best ways to manage this is to really just make sure that your natural sleep drive is high enough so that you can fall asleep within 15, 20 minutes, ideally. Okay. That's good to know the 15, 20 minutes. Is it bad if you're falling asleep immediately? Cause sometimes my aura ring will tell me like, it's like you fell asleep in two minutes. That's not good. And yeah, I'm- so, so that means you're not getting enough sleep. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So if you're falling asleep in less than five minutes, that's a sign that you are not getting enough sleep, that you're experiencing sleep deprivation. The like sweet spot, or the ideal time it should take for someone to fall asleep is about 15, 20 minutes or less. Wow. So that's if it's taking it, yeah. So if it's taking you m- like much less time, you're not getting enough sleep. And then of course, on the flip side, if it's taking you a lot more time to fall asleep or it's taking you hours, then it could be k- kind of under the umbrella of insomnia. Okay. And how do you feel about napping throughout the day in order to kind of make some of those hours up? Are you a proponent of naps? It depends. It depends. So interestingly enough, for most folks with insomnia, they are unable to nap during the day. Mm. Like they really feel tired, but their brains are so wired that even if they tried to go lay down, they just wouldn't really be able to sleep. So naps aren't usually something that are even in the picture for folks with insomnia. Usually if your body is you know, giving you the signs that you need to nap during the day, it could be a sign that you're not getting enough sleep. And oftentimes it is. So in those cases, I would say, yes, I'm a huge proponent for napping during the day because you're losing quite a bit of sleep at night for, you know, whatever reason I generally, so everybody's going to be different here as well, as far as nap recommendations, but I generally do recommend setting an alarm for a like 30 minute nap in the afternoon And ideally before two to 3 p.m. for most people. So you don't want it to be too late because then, of course, that can interfere with your nighttime sleep. You also don't want it to be too long because, you know, if you end up getting an hour or an hour plus nap, you could actually start then to get into deep sleep. And that may actually take away some of that quality sleep from your nighttime sleep. So you want to keep the nap short and keep it. Um, early enough that it won't interfere with your nighttime sleep. And gen- my general rule of thumb is if you are a really great napper and it's not interfering with your nighttime sleep, then keep the nap. But if you find that you're napping and it is interfering with your ability to fall asleep at night, then that may be something that you want to experiment with, maybe shorten the nap to start or you know work your way up to cutting out the nap entirely 
and then see if you notice any differences with your sleep. God. And I always hear sleep experts talking about how it's good to wake up at the same time every day, regardless of what time you go to bed. Would you agree yes. with that? Is it, is that? Yes, I would agree with that. <laughs> I would agree with that wholeheartedly. And the reason for that is, is because, you know, we, our bodies don't really have an on off switch between weekdays to weekends. Mm -hmm. So, you know, for a lot of us where we are waking up earlier during the week, ideally, yes, you want to keep that same wake up time on the weekends as well. So seven out of seven days, keep that consistent because if you're not like even an hour can throw off your circadian rhythm on the weekends. And a prime example of that is like when the time changes, you know, it's an hour difference, but most people that next week, they really feel a difference. Like it often takes a good couple of days to a week to feel back to normal, so to speak. Mm -hmm. And most people are doing that every single weekend. They're sleeping in one to two hours or, or more sometimes. And that's actually what we now call social jet lag. So it's like flying three time zones, but your body, you know, is, is still in this time zone. And then you try to change back on Monday. So two days later, I mean, it wreaks havoc within your, uh, your body clock and with your circadian system, your circadian rhythm. So it is something that, you know, I think for, for most of us, it's really hard, especially if you wake up super early during the week. I mean, no one wants to be up at the crack of dawn on the weekends, but that is something from a sleep perspective in order to regulate your sleep wake cycle, waking up at the same time every morning does allow your body clock to keep that regular pattern. And it's also what allows you to sync to the 24 hour day. So it doesn't give your body those big signals or that like jet lag feeling. So is it better to get less sleep, but wake up at the same time every day? Or if you can only kind of get enough sleep on the weekends to have that social jet lag, which one is a better option? Well, such a tough question, (laughs) such a tough question, but also a really great one. And I'm sure, I'm sure this is also a question that sleep specialists will, will, will argue, but I, I generally, so the way that I would approach that would be stick with the same wake up time, seven out of seven days a week, but on the weekends, if you do feel like you need to nap, actually give yourself the opportunity to nap. So Mm -hmm. keep the wake up time the same, because that does kind of keep an anchor in your sleep wake cycle, but then actually give yourself the opportunity to nap. So you do get some more sleep. It's just going to be later in the afternoon, but that way you're rise time keeps consistent. And that is what really helps to regulate your whole sleep wake circadian rhythm. Okay. That's a good tip. I'll try that this weekend. (laughs) Yeah. So, so so of course it's miserable to hear your alarm go off super early on the weekends, but yeah, I would say try it out with any sleep, um, like modification or any sleep tip. You always want to try them out for a good two weeks because it really does take the body at least a week to just get into the swing of things and to adjust. So if that's something you end up trying, like sticking with the same wake up time, you know, across seven days, give it a good two weeks and then see if you notice that not only the quality of your sleep may improve, but you may notice that maybe you're just not as sleepy or feeling like you need to sleep on the weekends. 
Mm. And is there even such a thing as catching up on sleep or once it's lost, is it kind of lost forever? Yeah, another question where it kind of depends. So what we know about catching up on sleep is that it is really hard for humans to catch up on chronic sleep loss. So if you know, someone for, for many different types of reasons, someone's experiencing sleep deprivation on a regular basis. So a really common example would be someone who's a shift worker, someone who works a night shift. If that person is working a night shift and their sleep schedule is the complete opposite, there's a mismatch between their work and their actual sleep, their sleep schedule. They're going to be experiencing sleep deprivation for many years, you know, depending on how long they're working in that position, that's going to be really hard to catch up from. That's going to be really hard. Mm-hmm. Um, well, over the course of the week, what we found in, in some studies is that we can make up for periods of acute sleep loss or acute sleep deprivation, which is oftentimes what is what the body attempts to do on the weekends. You know, if we don't get enough sleep during the week, the body will attempt to make that up on the weekends, but that can then throw off your circadian rhythm as well. So the body will attempt to make up for short periods of sleep loss, and that can help to alleviate some daytime sleepiness in the short term, but it's not going to negate the effects of chronic sleep loss. So many, many years of sleep loss that build up over time. Okay. And just to kind of shift our focus on certain things that you talk about that aren't necessarily sleep, but that impact sleep. I know you do talk a lot about sunlight and its importance in good sleep. So could you kind of explain the link between sunlight and sleep and why it's so crucial to get enough sunlight? Yes. Yes. Love this question. It is something that I preach. Um, And, you know, it is, I would say my, my two like go-to sleep tips are going to be waking up at the same time every day across seven days and then getting morning sunlight Mm. and morning sunlight. What we've discovered from a sleep perspective is that morning sunlight is incredibly powerful for regulating our sleep wake cycle. It directly affects our many different hormones involved with sleep, including melatonin, which is the most well-known sleep hormone, but it also helps to regulate serotonin, which not only impacts how we sleep, but it also impacts our mood, our digestion. It impacts so many other things throughout the day as well. So the timing of when we get our light is what's important. So morning light specifically from a sleep perspective has been shown to really help regulate the sleep-wake process. So in theory, if you wake up at the same time every day across seven days, you'll be getting your sunlight about the same time every morning. And that's what's going to really help to regulate all of the hormones involved with the process of sleep. So think about it kind of this way, like sunlight helps to synthesize or regulate all of the hormones and uh, processes involved with being able to have good, consistent quality sleep on a regular basis. So interesting. And you mentioned melatonin. Are you a proponent of taking melatonin to regulate sleep and to be able to fall asleep? Or is that something that you kind of don't recommend to people? Yeah. Another, another question where it kind of depends, I would say more often than not, I advise against melatonin over the counter melatonin, I should say. And 
one of the main reasons for that is because in the US, uh, supplements are not regulated. Mm -hmm. So, you know, like many other supplements, which I, I do believe in taking some supplements, but like many others, sometimes we really don't know what quality or purity of the melatonin we're getting. And there is some research that has looked into melatonin products that are on the market. And oftentimes what's on the label isn't what's actually in the pill. Like the milligrams are completely different than what's marketed. And there are a lot of additives and fillers as well. So, you know, I always tell like go into that with like, you need to do your research when it comes to melatonin and make sure you have more of a, a pure melatonin product, which is hard to do. But I generally advise against it because our bodies produce our own production of melatonin. Like what we need to sleep, our bodies produce it for us. So we don't actually need extra melatonin to help us sleep or to help us sleep better. And I know people swear by taking melatonin. And, you know, I, again, like many things I say, like, if it works for you and you find that it's helpful, keep it in the picture. Most often than not, especially for most people with insomnia, melatonin doesn't really do anything. Um, or it actually causes side effects. Like it can cause vivid dreams, nightmares. It can lead to morning grogginess or kind of feeling hungover. And so it just sometimes makes things worse. So it depends on the type of sleep issue. And for some folks, I should say for a lot of folks, taking melatonin is often more of a placebo effect if, if it is mm. something that is found to be helpful, which that's still an effect. Um, so it, it can definitely work for folks, but if it's something where it's adding more side effects, then definitely not. And I personally think that any more than one milligram is way too much okay. of melatonin over the counter melatonin and, and, you know, sleep specialists will, you know, kind of have their take on this too. Sometimes one to three milligrams is recommended for insomnia. I usually say like, if, if you don't need to take something, let's try to go about this more of the, like not having to take anything route, but it can be helpful for, for some sleep issues. Um, and I will say, you know, with, with the melatonin, um, and going back to the sunlight piece, you know, the time that we get our sunlight, it essentially communicates to the brain when we should be releasing our melatonin each night. So it's on a very regular pattern. And if you're getting natural light, your, your brain is doing its thing in terms of melatonin. And you also talk about proper nutrition being an ingredient for better sleep. So is there a certain time we should stop eating? Are there foods to include or avoid just for better sleep? Yeah, that's, that's a fantastic question. And I would say this is going to depend because we all have different sleep schedules. So there are folks who kind of fall into what we consider in the sleep world, like a typical sleep phase, which is like a classic 10 PM to 6 AM or 11 to seven. Mm -hmm. And then there are people who have much earlier sleep schedules. Like they get sleepy seven or 8 PM and then they wake up three, 4 AM, no problem. And then on the late end of that, there are folks who fall into having a really delayed sleep schedule. So like two, three, four, 5 AM I've seen. And wow. then 
we'll sleep until, you know, mid morning or late afternoon or, or, you know, even later, it just kind of depends. And in sleep medicine, we think about the variability in sleep schedules from an evolutionary perspective, like back in the caveman days, we couldn't have afforded to all be asleep at the exact same time, or we wouldn't have survived as a species. So there always had to be somebody up at all times of the day or night in order to protect the tribe, so to speak. So, you know, we view that as kind of evolving to have these different sleep schedules. And so I think it starts with going back to your question. I think it starts with kind of knowing where your natural sleep schedule is, because that can then help kind of tease apart the schedule for when you should be eating. So meal timing is really important for regulating sleep. So it ultimately depends on kind of where your sleep schedule is and then how to optimize that and how to fit in your eating schedule based on what time you're actually going to bed. So for most, most folks, and I'm sure you've seen this, the recommendation is to really stop eating, you know, don't have anything too heavy or too spicy uh, about three hours before bed. Mm-hmm. But to give yourself that buffer zone, just because you do want to digest that food. Sometimes the process of digestion can get in the way of falling asleep. So you do want to give your body that time, but it's going to vary from person to person. So I'll give myself as an example, I'm a night owl. My window, my, my natural rhythm is usually like two 30 to 10 30. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, you know, me cutting off food at 7 PM is just not going to work. I, you know, haven't right. even really like had dinner yet or anything. I'm still kind of finishing up my work day. So, you know, three hours for me looks a lot different than someone who has more typical sleep schedule. So I kind of base when you should be eating something on your natural sleep wake circadian rhythm, because that's going to give you kind of the best idea of when you should be cutting off food. And when, then of course, when you should be um, having your first meal. That's super interesting. And I love that you brought up that evolutionary perspective because I ne- I've never thought of it that way. And that makes so much sense. Yeah. That we I'm curious all- what your, what your sleep schedule is give or take. Yeah. I think I fall into the normal, like 10 to, mm-hmm. I would say 11 to seven actually is where my sweet spot is. But unfortunately with my job right now in my program, I have to wake up at five, five thirty every day. And, but I still go to sleep at like 10 30, 11, 11 30. And so it's just created all these problems because I'm not getting enough sleep, but it is temporary. So I'm looking forward to when this program is ending just for that reason, when I can get my sleep life back. Um, But yeah, I do fall into that normal, like Mm -hmm. not normal, but the regular, like you said, a a typical, a typical, typical, yeah. Yeah. And I'd say the majority of people fall into that category. It is still hard if you have to wake up early for, for school work responsibilities, Mm -hmm. like you'll, you'll feel it. You'll know if you're waking up too early, you will feel it during the day. And that's certainly something that I struggled with, you know, as you can imagine, like couldn't sleep in until 10 30, 11, most of my adult life. And especially yeah. working in a hospital setting, like sometimes rounds were at 7 a.m. I had to wake up at six, which was absolute torture. Um, so it can really cause a lot of problems as, as far as daytime functioning. So for people who kind of fall into the window that I'm in, the best thing is like 
to really be able to pick your own schedule. So that way you can shift everything later, which isn't always ideal. So it, Uh of course, you know, living in a nine to five world, we do have a lot of restrictions there and not many people fully understand the nature of having very different sleep schedules. Yeah. It's so hard. And what if, what do you do if you sleep with a partner and your partner, you know, a, if they have to wake up early or B, what if they snore and disrupt your sleep? Like, what do you have to say about just sleeping with someone else? Yeah, it definitely complicates things. I would say usually if you have a bed partner, it often does become somewhat of a relationship issue or it can, you know, if one partner doesn't sleep well, or one partner snores. And so it often is kind of a joint effort for those that I see at least where, you know, they really are struggling because of something their partner may be doing during the night. And with snoring, you know, this is something that I think as a society, we've kind of normalized and snoring Mm -hmm. is not normal. Snoring is never normal. So whether that means that there's an actual sleep disorder, the only way, you know, we really know that is with the sleep study, but it means that there's something blocking the airway or blocking the nasal cavity. And it usually means that sleep is not the best quality. It's fragmented. It's broken. Even if the person doesn't realize it, they're not getting good quality sleep if snoring is in the picture. So whenever somebody says they're snoring or their partner's snoring, my first question is, have they had a sleep study or have they been evaluated? That's the first step because snoring indicates that there's something there that's disrupting sleep and it ultimately is disrupting the partner as well. Mm -hmm. Um, So snoring should definitely be something to kind of look into. And it is also really hard with a partner who has a different sleep schedule or a different work schedule. There may be some sleep loss involved with that. And that is the reality of, you know, having a partner that may have a different schedule, but there are some kind of behavioral things that we could potentially do if that, if that's something that the couple would be open to. So it's sometimes coming up with a compromise as far as how to go about meeting them halfway. Um, And I think it's definitely sometimes a lot harder for the night owl or of course for the partner has to wake up really early and then is disrupting the other partner. So it just kind of depends, but it, it does make things a lot more challenging. Yeah, totally. With the snoring thing. So something I've been doing recently that I've been looking into is taping my mouth when I go to sleep with mouth tape. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And some people, like I've told some of my friends and they're like, what? But it's, it's, it's a thing, right? It is a thing. I actually okay. just posted about it this week. So it is a thing. It's, it's definitely something I've been seeing a lot more of, and especially with um, dentists as well. Like dentists uh-huh. are starting to recommend mouth tape too, as they're starting to see more sleep disordered breathing and evidence with that when people are going in for their, their checkups. So mouth taping is a thing. So it's essentially like having this fabric that covers your mouth and there are you know, a bunch of different companies out these days, but you you know, wear it while you sleep. And then the idea is to keep everything, you know, kind of in place. And what, you know, I would say what, what we know about them so far is that they do help potentially reduce snoring. They can help reduce snoring. They can also help with folks who like wake up with dry mouth, sore throat, kind of like cotton mouth. Sometimes people will describe it, um, help with drooling, helped with maybe clenching or biting down during the night. So they can kind of help just keep things in place. Mm -hmm. Um, So they can certainly, I think, 
do a lot. And also just by nature of nasal breathing, which is what we really want to do as humans, we don't do enough of it. I think sometimes, um, not only at night, but during the day as well, we're often like just really stressed and just breathing very short and forget to breathe through our nose sometimes. Um, but mouth taping allows you to really just have that, that nasal breathing during the night, which helps really bring oxygen throughout the body to carry nutrients and helps with blood. And so it promotes a lot more, I would say promotes a lot more oxygen uptake throughout the body and ultimately protects your lungs and airways if you are snoring. So it can be really helpful for a number of different reasons. I will say it isn't, in my opinion, necessarily kind of a standalone treatment for sleep disorders, but I think it could be an addition to having a treatment in place, like, and specifically, you know, I'll give the example of someone who has sleep apnea, so really bad snoring and who's actually stopping breathing during the night, multiple times an hour. The first line treatment for that is going to be a CPAP machine, but wearing these mouth tape strips can actually help keep things in place and help use the machine much more effectively. So I think that they can be kind of that additional therapy, but not necessarily like the treatment that's going to help if you have a sleep disorder. I have one last question for you before we move on to a few rapid fires. If you have time, Sure. what is your nighttime routine to help set you up for an amazing night of sleep? Do you have one? Do you recommend one to people? Yes. And yes. Mm -hmm. Um, So my routine, you know, I I do have kind of my go-to activities, but it does vary on a nightly basis, just because sometimes I do have days that are more stressful in nature. And so on those days, I say like, I need to focus more on de-stressing tonight versus, um, you know, kind of what my normal routine looks like, but generally it is cutting off screens and cutting off work. I try to do an hour before bed. Doesn't always happen, but at least 30 minutes is my goal, but usually, you know, is about an hour before bed. And then I transition to um, usually either taking a hot shower or hot bath. And then after that, I read a good book. So I transition to reading a good book and I actually use um, orange lighting. So lighting is really important at night too. You want to keep dim light once you turn off screens and ideally, you know, about two hours before bedtime, you want to start thinking about dim light because that can interfere with melatonin production. Although research is kind of mixed on that, but I generally then transition to reading a book with dim light. And then that usually does the trick. Um, so I'll read maybe for 20 minutes or less and, you know, be, be out. Um, and then on days where I maybe need a little bit more relaxation, Um, I will focus more on doing like a guided meditation or some gentle yoga stretches before bed, because that does help me kind of release some tension. So gentle stretching and more of like the meditation breathing route. Um, But my go-to is usually reading a good book. I love it. And I have a red light right here, actually. Yes. Um, Red red light's the best. Yeah. turn off all my lights like around 30 minutes before bed I try to at least and I'll just use the red light right before bed but I'm out like within a few minutes it's yeah yeah because easy for me to fall asleep luckily yeah because 
it sounds to me like you're losing a bit of sleep with your your current schedule yes. which as you said totally temporary <laughs> exactly and when it's over I'm gonna get back into the swing of having a normal sleep schedule but yeah. thank you so much for answering all of these questions this was super informative okay. and I learned so much and I'm sure everyone else did before we end though I have a few rapid fire questions that I ask all of our guests. So the first one is, what is your favorite fruit? Oh my gosh. (laughs) (laughs) This one blind signs people. (laughs) Favorite fruit. Oh, that's so hard. I would have to say blueberries um, because of the brain health benefits. Mm -hmm. Love it. Love a good blueberry. They're so good. What is your sun sign? Oh, I, I don't know. <laughs> oh, you don't know it? When were you no. born? How do I know this? Um, I was birthday? born March 27th. Does that I'm an Aries. An Aries? Yeah, you're an Aries. Okay. Okay. Cool. So that so I didn't know it was also called that. Look at me. Oh, <laughs> oh, so you knew that. Okay, okay. So yeah, the sun sign is the zodiac sign that you zodiac sign. Okay. Yeah, yeah. It's the it's the main <laughs> one. Um <laughs> What is one book that changed your life that you would recommend to everyone? And it doesn't have to be about sleep. Oh my gosh. Oh, this is really hard. Yeah. So the, the exact name, I'll have to look it up. The exact like title is, I, I'm not, I'm probably not going to say this correctly, but it's by James Nestor and it's called Breathe, I believe, or mm. Breath. And it's all about nasal breathing. And I would say like, that's not only something that has helped from a sleep perspective and just like in my line of work, but it's also just helped open my eyes to how much nasal breathing can really affect our overall health and wellness and our quality of life. Um, So yeah, James Nestor, I believe it's called breath and I'm going to be really uh, annoyed with myself for not like (laughs) knowing the title right now. But if you Google search that, I'm sure it will pop up for you. Yeah, I'm sure people can find it. And it's so fascinating because I've actually been researching that a little bit more. Like it can affect your jaw shape, your like digestion. It's insane. It so, affects everything. It yeah, really does. I want to read that book. That sounds interesting. The next question is, what is one habit or ritual that you do every day that's a non-negotiable for you? Get morning sunlight. Yeah. And what are your thoughts on thriving? So what do you think is the key to thriving? Oh, wow. I would say the, the key to thriving would be living a life with purpose, which I know is, is, is very multifaceted, um, living a life with purpose, but also having a good quality of life. And so that really stems from not only having good sleep or prioritizing sleep, but also prioritizing just all the different factors that are involved with a healthy lifestyle and, you know, kind of being that best version of you. Like it's always you versus you, even though there's a lot of things to compare to, but, you know, it's, it's living a life of, of intention and purpose that really is, you know, who you are at your core. I love it. I completely agree. Thank you so much for sharing your wisdom, sharing all about sleep with us today. Of course, it's, my pl- it's been my pleasure. Thank you yeah. so much for having me.
Of course. And if people want to find you on social media, potentially want to work with you, if that's even a possibility, I know you work with yes, people in is. Florida and New York, if I'm yes, correct. Yes. Yeah. Yep. Yep. So psychologists, we have um, state restrictions as far as licensure. So yes, I'm licensed in Florida and New York. So that means I can see anybody who lives in either of those states. And yes, you can definitely find me on socials. My website is drsarasleep.com, but on socials um, and pretty much every platform, although I'm most active on Instagram, I'm at drsarasleep on all of those. So yeah, you can definitely follow along um, with my updates. And later on this year, I'm actually going to be branching out into more consulting work just because I personally do feel with psychologists and having the license restrictions, it it, it limits how many people I can actually help. So getting into a bit of consulting and I'm actually going to be working on an online uh, insomnia course. So I'm looking forward to kind of um, announcing that in a few months. And that will be something that will take, you know, my approach, but also, of course, the foundation of cognitive behavior therapy for insomnia and bridge them together in a really kind of um, easy to digest on-demand course. So that's definitely something to look out for. Um, But yeah, at Dr. Sarah Sleep on all socials. Awesome. Thank you so much, Dr. Sarah. It was so lovely talking to you. Likewise. Thanks again for having me. Yeah. Thank you guys for listening and I'll talk to you guys next time. Bye. Bye.